Chapter Seventeen of the Midnight Queen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Midnight Queen by May Agnes Fleming. Chapter Seventeen The Hidden Face. When Mr. Malcolm Ormiston, with his usual good sense and penetration, took himself off and left Leoline and Sir Norman tete a tete, his steps turned as mechanically as the needle to the North Pole toward Le Masque's house. Before it he wandered, around it he wandered, like an uneasy ghost, lost in speculation about the hidden face, and fearfully impatient about the flight of time. If La Masque saw him hovering aloof and unable to tear himself away, perhaps it might touch her obdurate heart and cause her to shorten the dreary interval and summon him to her presence at once. Just then someone opened the door and his heart began to beat with anticipation. Someone pronounced his name and going over he saw the animated bag of bones, otherwise his lady loves vassal and porter. La Masque says, began the attenuated lackey, and Ormiston's heart nearly jumped out of his mouth, that she can't have anybody hanging about her house like its shadow, and she wants you to go away and keep away till the time comes she has mentioned. So saying, the skeleton shut the door, and Ormiston's heart went down to zero. There being nothing for it but obedience, however, he slowly and reluctantly turned away, feeling in his bones that if he ever came to the bliss and ecstasy of calling la masque mrs ormiston the gray mare in his stable would be by long odds the better horse unintentionally his steps turned to the waterside and he descended the flight of stairs determined to get into a boat and watch the illumination from the river late as was the hour the thames seemed alive with ferries and barges and their numerous lights danced along the surface like fireflies over a marsh. A gay barge, gilded and cushioned, was going slowly past, and as he stood directly under the lamp, he was recognized by a gentleman within it, who leaned over and hailed him. Ormiston! I say, Ormiston! Well, my lord, said Ormiston, recognizing the handsome face and animated voice of the Earl of Rochester, have you any engagement for the next half hour? If not, do me the favor to take a seat here and watch London in flames from the river. With all my heart, said Ormiston, running down to the water's edge and leaping into the boat. With all this bustle of life around here, one would think it were noonday instead of midnight. The whole city is astir about these fires. Have you any idea they will be successful? Not the least. You know, my lord... The prediction runs that the plague will rage till the living are no longer able to bury the dead. It will soon come to that, said the earl, shuddering slightly, if it continues increasing much longer as it does now daily. How do the bills of mortality run today? I've not heard. Hark, there goes St. Paul's tolling twelve. And there goes a flash of fire, the first among many. Look, look how they sprang up into the black darkness. They will not do it long. Look at the sky, my lord. The earl glanced up at the midnight sky of a dull and dingy red color, 
except where black and heavy clouds were heaving like angry billows, all dingy with smoke, and streaked with bars of fiery red. I see, there is a storm coming, and a heavy one. Our worthy burghers and most worshipful Lord Mayor will see their fires extinguished shortly, and themselves sent home with wet jackets. And for weeks, almost a month, there has not fallen a drop of rain, remarked Armiston gravely. A remarkable coincidence, truly. There seems to be a fatality hanging over this devoted city. I wonder your lordship remains. The earl shrugged his shoulders significantly. It is not so easy leaving it as you think, Mr. Ormiston, but I am to turn my back to it to-morrow for a brief period. You are aware, I suppose, that the court leaves before daybreak for Oxford? I believe I have heard something of it. How long to remain? Till Charles takes it into his head to come back again, said the earl familiarly, which will probably be in a week or two. Look at that sky, all black and scarlet, and look at those people. I scarcely thought there were half the number left alive in London. Even the sick have come out tonight, said Ormiston. Half the pest stricken in the city have left their beds full of newborn hope. One would think it were a carnival. So it is, a carnival of death. I hope, Ormiston, said the earl, looking at him with a light laugh, the pretty little white fairy we rescued from the river is not one of the sick parading the streets. Ormiston looked grave. No, my lord, I think she is not. I left her safe and secure. Who is she, Ormiston, coaxed the earl laughingly. Pshaw, man, don't make a mountain out of a molehill. Tell me her name. Her name is Leoline. What else? That is just what I would like to have someone tell me. I give you my honor, lord, I do not know. The earl's face, half indignant, half incredulous, wholly curious, made Ormiston smile. It is a fact, my lord, I asked her her name, and she told me, Leoline, a pretty title enough, but rather unsatisfactory. How long have you known her? To the best of my belief, said Ormiston, musingly, about four hours. Nonsense, cried the earl energetically. What are you telling me, Ormiston? You said she was an old friend. I beg your pardon, my lord, I said no such thing. I told you she had escaped from her friends, which was strictly true. Then how the demon had you the impudence to come up and carry her off in that style? I certainly had a better right to her than you, the right of discovery, and I shall call upon you to deliver her up. If she belonged to me, I should only be too happy to oblige your lordship, laughed Ormiston. But she is at present the property of Sir Norman Kingsley, and to him you must apply. Ah, his inamorata, is she? Well, I must say his taste is excellent, but I should think you ought to know her name, since you and he are noted for being a modern Damon and Pythias. Probably I should, my lord, only Sir Norman, unfortunately, does not know himself. The earl's countenance looked so utterly blank at this announcement that Ormiston was forced to throw in a word of explanation. I mean to say, my lord, that he has fallen in love with her, and, judging from appearances, I should say his flame is not altogether hopeless, although they have met tonight for the first time. A rapid passion. Where have you left her, Ormiston? In her own house, my lord, Ormiston replied, smiling quietly to himself. Where is that? 
about a dozen yards from where I stood when you called me. Who are her family? continued the earl, who seemed possessed of a devouring curiosity. She has none that I know of. I imagine Mistress Leoline is an orphan. I know there was not a living soul but ourselves in the house I brought her to. And you left her there alone, exclaimed the earl, half starting up, as if about to order the boatman to row back to the landing. Ormiston looked at his excited face with a glance full of quiet malice. No, my lord, not quite. Sir Norman Kingsley was with her. Ah, oh, said the earl, smiling back with a look of chagrin. Then he will probably find out her name before he comes away. I wonder you could give her up so easily to him after all your trouble. Smitten, my lord, inquired Ormiston maliciously. Hopelessly, replied the earl with a deep sigh. She was a perfect little beauty, and if I can find her, I warn Sir Norman Kingsley to take care. I have already sent Hubert out in search of her, and, by the way, said the earl with a sudden increase of animation, what a wonderful resemblance she bears to Hubert. I could almost swear they were one and the same. The likeness is marvelous, but I should hate to take such an oath. I confess I am somewhat curious myself, but I stand no chance of having it gratified before tomorrow, I suppose. How those fires blaze! It is much brighter than at noonday. Show me the house in which Leoline lies. Ormiston easily pointed it out and showed the earl the light still burning in her window. It was in that room we found her first, dead of the plague. Dead of the what? cried the earl aghast. Dead of the plague. I'll tell your lordship how it was, said Ormiston, who forthwith commend and related the story of their finding Leoline, of the resuscitation at the plague pit, of the flight from Sir Norman's house, and of the delirious plunge into the river and miraculous cure. A marvelous story, commented the earl, much interested, and Leoline seems to have as many lives as a cat. Who can she be? A princess in disguise? Eh, Ormiston? She looks fit to be a princess or anything else, but your lordship knows as much about her now as I do. You say she was dressed as a bride. How came that? Simply enough. She was to be married tonight, had she not taken the plague instead. Married? Why, I thought you told me a few minutes ago she was in love with Kingsley. It seems to me, Mr. Ormiston, your remarks are a trifle inconsistent, said the earl in a tone of astonished displeasure. Nevertheless, they are all perfectly true. Mistress Leoline was to be married, as I told you, but she was to marry to please her friends and not herself. She had been in the habit of watching Kingsley go past her window, and the way she blushed and the way she went through other little motions convinces me that his course of true love will run as smoothly as this classy river runs at present. Kingsley is a lucky fellow. Will the discarded suitor have no voice in the matter, or is he such a simpleton as to give her up at a word? Ormiston laughed. Ah, to be sure, what will the Count say? And, judging from some things I've heard, I should say he is violently in love with her. Count who? asked Rochester. Or has he, like his lady-love, no other name? Oh, no, the name of the gentleman who was so nearly blessed for life and missed it is Count L'Etrange. The earl had been lying listlessly back, only half intent upon his answer, 
as he watched the fire, but now he sprang sharply up and stared Armiston full in the face. Count, what did you say was the eager question, while his eyes, more eager than his voice, strove to read the reply before it was repeated. Count de l'Etrange, you know him, my lord, said Armiston quietly. Ah, said the earl, and then such a strange meaning smile went wandering about his face. I have not said that. So his name is Count L'Etrange. Well, I don't wonder now at the girl's beauty. The earl sank back to his former nonchalant position and fell for a moment or two into deep musing, and then, as if the whole thing struck him in a new and ludicrous light, he broke out into an immoderate fit of laughter. Ormiston looked at him curiously. "'It is my turn to ask questions now, my lord. Who is Count L'Etrange?' "'I know of no such person, Ormiston. I was thinking of something else.' Was it Leoline who told you that was her lover's name? No, I heard it by mere accident from another person. I am sure if Leoline is not a personage in disguise, he is. And why do you think so? An inward conviction, my lord. So you will not tell me who he is? Have I not told you I know of no such person as Count L'Etrange? You ought to believe me. Oh, here it comes. This last was addressed to a great drop of rain, which splashed heavily on his upturned face, followed by another and another in quick succession. The storm is upon us, said the earl, sitting up and wrapping his cloak closer around him. And I am for Whitehall. Shall we land you, Ormiston, or take you there, too? I must land, said Ormiston. I have a pressing engagement for the next half hour. Here it is, in a perfect deluge. The fires will be out in five minutes. The barge touched the stairs, and Ormiston sprang out with good night to the earl. The rain was rushing along now in torrents, and he ran upstairs and darted into an archway of the bridge to seek the shelter. Someone else had come there before him in search of the same thing, for he saw two dark figures standing within it as he entered. A sudden storm was Ormiston's salutation, and a furious one. There go the fires, hiss and splutter. I knew how it would be. Then Saul and Mr. Ormiston are among the prophets? Ormiston had heard that voice before. It was associated in his mind with a slouched hat and a shadowy cloak, and by the fast-fading flicker of the firelight he saw that both were here. The speaker, one Count L'Etrange, the figure beside him, slender and boyish, was unknown. "'You have the advantage of me, sir,' he said, affecting ignorance. "'May I ask who you are?' "'Certainly, a gentleman, by courtesy, and the grace of God. "'And your name?' "'Count L'Etrange, at your service.' Ormiston lifted his cap and bowed with a feeling somehow that the Count was a man in authority." Mr. Ormiston assisted in doing a good deed tonight for a friend of mine, said the Count. Will he add to that obligation by telling me if he has not discovered her again and brought her back? Do you refer to the fair lady in yonder house? So, she is there? I thought so. George, said the Count, addressing himself to his companion. Yes, I refer to her, the lady you saved from the river. You brought her there? I brought her there, replied Ormiston. She is there still? I presume so. I have heard nothing to the contrary. And alone? 
"'She may be now. Sir Norman Kingsley was with her when I left her,' said Ormiston, administering the fact with infinite relish. There was a moment's silence. Ormiston could not see the Count's face, but, judging from his own feelings, he fancied its expression must be sweet. The wild rush of the storm alone broke the silence, until the spirit again moved the Count to speak. "'By what right does Sir Norman Kingsley visit her?' he inquired, in a voice betokening not the least particle of emotion. "'By the best of rights, that of her preserver, hoping soon to be her lover.' There was another brief silence, broken again by the Count, in the same composed tone. "'Since the lady holds her levy so late, I too must have a word with her, when this deluge permits one to go abroad without danger of drowning.' It shown symptoms of clearing off already, said Ormiston, who, in his secret heart, thought it would be an excellent joke to bring the rivals face to face in the lady's presence. So you will not have to wait long. To which observation the Count replied not, and the three stood in silence watching the fury of the storm. Gradually it cleared away, and as the moon began to straggle out between the rifts in the clouds, the Count saw something by her pale light that Ormiston saw not. That latter gentleman, standing with his back to the house of Leoline and his face toward that of La Masque, did not observe the return of Sir Norman from St. Paul's, nor look after him as he rode away. But the Count did both, and ten minutes after, when the rain had entirely ceased and the moon and stars got the better of the clouds in their struggle for supremacy, he beheld La Masque flitting like a dark shadow in the same direction, and vanishing in at Leoline's door. The same instant Ormiston started to go. The storm has entirely ceased, he said, stepping out, and with the profound air of one making a new discovery, and we are likely to have fine weather for the remainder of the night, or rather morning. Good night, Count. Farewell, said the Count, as he and his companion came out from the shadow of the archway and turned to follow La Masque. Ormiston, thinking the hour of waiting had elapsed, and feeling much more interested in the coming meeting than in Leoline and her visitors, paid very little attention to his two acquaintances. He saw them, it is true, enter Leoline's house, but at the same instant he took up his post at La Masque's doorway, and concentrated his whole attention on that piece of architecture. Every moment seemed like a week now, and before he had stood at his post five minutes, he had worked himself up into a perfect fever of impatience. Sometimes he was inclined to knock and seek La Masque in her own home, but, as often, the fear of a chilling rebuke paralyzed his hand when he raised it. He was so sure she was within the house that he never thought of looking for her elsewhere, and when, at the expiration of what seemed to him a century or two, but which in reality was about a quarter of an hour, there was a soft rustling of drapery behind him, and the sweetest of voices sounded in his ear. It fairly made him bound. Here again, Mr. Ormiston? Is this the fifth or the sixth time I found you in this place tonight? La Masque, he cried, between joy and surprise. But surely I was not totally unexpected this time. Perhaps not. You are waiting here for me to redeem my promise, I suppose. Can you doubt it? Since I knew you first, I have desired this hour as the blind desire sight. Ah, uh, 
and you will find it as sweet to look back upon as you have to look forward to said la masque derisively if you are wise for yourself mr ormiston you will pause here and give me back that fatal word never madame and surely you will not be so piteously cruel as to draw back now no i have promised and i shall perform and let the consequences be what they may they will rest upon your own head you have been warned and you still insist i still insist then let us move farther over there into the shadow of the houses this moonlight is so dreadfully bright they moved on into the deep shadow and there was a pulse throbbing in ormiston's head and heart like the beating of a muffled drum they paused and faced each other silently quick madame cried ormiston hoarsely his whole face flushed wildly his strange companion lifted her hand as if to remove the mask and he saw that it shook like an aspen she made one motion as though about to lift it and then recoiled as if from herself in a sort of horror my god what is this man urging me to do how can i ever fulfill that fatal promise madame you torture me said ormiston whose face showed what he felt you must keep your promise so do not drive me wild waiting let me he took a step toward her as to lift the mask himself but she held out both arms to keep him off no 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 come not near me malcolm ormiston fated man since you will rush on your doom look and let the sight blast you if it will she unfastened her mask raised it and with it the profusion of long sweeping black hair ormiston did look in much the same way perhaps that zulinka looked at the veiled prophet the next moment there was a terrible cry and he fell headlong with a crash as if a bullet had whined through his heart End of chapter 17